during the South, South African isolation period, uh, uh, the cricket fans and historians always wonder how certain players uh, would have fared among uh, the active uh, test players back then. And uh, this is a uh, very interesting <laughs> argument, but few names do always come to discussion among fans and analysts. And today's guest uh, has made this show much better by agreeing to come on our cricket with an accent. So this is Saqib Ali hosting the show. And I'm here welcoming uh, a former South African great, uh, Mike Proctor, to uh, Cricket with an Accent. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hi, Saqib. Thanks. Uh, cricket with an accent, that's a, that's a new expression of here. That's a good one. Yeah, this is an extension of my tennis show where we add many different accents. And believe me, uh, your accent is one of the one of the better accents I've heard in my three and a half years. Three and a half years of podcasting. It's a rich accent in terms of your cricket history. And uh, yeah, we spoke to Johan Creek of South Africa on the tennis show a few years ago. And hopefully today you will kickstart our show to new levels. So first things first, how are, are you and your family doing during this uh, the quarantine of uh, coronavirus. Well, okay, um, you know it's always it's always tough for everyone, I think, and I think it's probably tougher on the the poorer sort of uh, people around, and it's been tough for the South Africans because the government have been been very strict. Uh, in fact, they've banned alcohol and tobacco from changing hands, so no one can buy uh, alcohol. Uh, you can obviously consume it in your own house indoors. Uh, but apart from that, no bars are open, uh, no liquor outlets, and tobacco is the same. Uh, tobacco is a bit of a surprise. I can understand alcohol to a certain extent. But anyway, they've, they've been very strict, and I suppose it's the right way to go. Uh, and let's just see where we go from here. It's, it's tough for everyone. Uh, no, absolutely. And uh, what, what do you think, again, we are still living through this, and we don't know what timeline there is to any sport. But... Uh, uh, how is cricket going to come back out of this, especially South African cricket? Has the thought occurred to your to your mind? What will this do to to the team? And uh, of course, they are not alone. Every team, every player in the world is going through the same thing. So, how does the sport bounce back, especially South African cricket? Well, I think it's I, I think in, in, in some sort of ways it's a blessing in disguise. I mean, you've got to try and, and look at the positives out of it, and I think. Everyone, and I just, uh, not just including cricketers, I mean uh, football players, rugby players, tennis players, golfers, whoever, I think are going to be so excited to actually get out on the sports field again and play. I think it's going to be really exciting. It's like uh, everyone's going to be ha- have a new lease of life. Um, you know, because you have been locked in. This lockdown, as we say, is, is, is the right word. And if you're locked in, when you locked, uh, when it's unlocked and you come out, I, I think it'll, it'll blossom. I really think all sports will really come through on top. Yeah, this, uh, we do a lot of coverage on tennis, as, as I had mentioned. And in tennis, there's big conversations going on because tennis players are more like contractors. You know, they're not, they're not bodies that uh, worldwide support uh, the financial well-being. You know, if you don't play, you don't get paid. That's what tennis is. So are you closer to anything in uh, cricket administration-wise still for South Africa? Are the players being taken care of financially? Or is that, are there been any discussions because the big news came out the other day that Graham Smith's going to be head of South African cricket. But financially, uh, how, how are the produce cr- uh, cricket structure? Uh, is there like a, a financial plan for players when they don't play? Or uh, uh, talk, talk more about that. No, what has come out um, is that they will be paid uh, while the lockdown is in place. For how long, uh, we don't know. But we don't know how long the lockdown is going to be. So at, at this stage in time, I think for the next three or four, three months at least, the South African players will, will be okay. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not involved in the administration. Uh, I have have done most things in cricket from from being director of cricket to match referees to playing to broadcasting to everything else. But uh, I haven't been involved in administrative of late in South African cricket. But Graham Smith's uh, a, a, a real uh, bonus, I think, for, for the cricketers and for the, the spectators in South Africa. Um, he's a household name. Uh, he was a tremendous captain, a tremendous character, always showed a lot of resilience, a lot of guts and determination. And he's the sort of guy that um, South African cricket had his problems. Uh, and that if anyone can, can solve them, I think Graham Smith's probably the right guy to do it. Again, uh, this was supposed to be <clears throat> a segue at, at the end of the show, but since we're already talking Smith, uh, let's talk quickly about South African cricket. So you think this is more like cyclic, cyclical change, that uh, a lot of talent has gone out and most teams go through this when a good generation departs? Uh, or is South African domestic structure still capable of producing a world-class outfit like they have had since the readmission into the game since 1992? Talk about that stuff. Yeah, I think South Africa, as you as you say, there there is a trans transition period. Yeah, I mean South Africa had some some fantastic cricketers uh, since '92, and the latest sort of batch that the, the Bouchers and Callis and, and Grace himself uh, going away, and now Fafdu to see Ab de Villiers uh, not playing, um, so it, it has left a bit of a hole. And there there is talent there, that's for sure. It's it's nurturing that talent, and I think what the selectors must do is. is Find the players they they want to fill the positions, and then back them, give them a chance. And I, th- I think that's the, the the thing the selectors must uh, take cognizance of is that uh, once you select a player, you, you haven't selected for one or two games. You selected for a period of time, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of players who have uh, really struggled at the beginning. And I think Greg Chappell was one who, I don't know, he scored a lot of noughts in his sort of first six or eight ten innings. Jacques Cullis was exactly the same, uh, but the selectors in those days obviously saw. The rich talent in Greg Chappell and, and the huge talent in Jack Cullison stuck with those guys, and you know they both became, you know, one of the household names in, in world cricket and some of the best of all time. What's the balancing act uh, for the future of South African cricket? Is there one ball or the other that's been prioritised? I'm talking about red ball cricket versus white ball cricket. The whole world, you know, the conversation has shifted. Even England, after 2015, uh, you know, put their heavy focus on on the white ball and the result was a World Cup and a world-class team uh, that we've seen in the last few years. So where does South Africa go from here? What are the conversations that you are aware of or you 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 know you hear about? Uh, is test cricket a priority or is it uh, a balancing act? I think test cricket is always going to be a priority. I know that uh, especially with the advent of T20 cricket a number of years back now and became so popular, uh, test cricket would have, was on the wane a little bit. And a lot of the countries weren't supporting it as much. And to date, uh, Australia supported very, very well. England supported very, very well. And apart from that, the other countries fall a little bit by the wayside. India crowds have diminished to what they used to be in test matches. Uh, South Africa, the same. New Zealand New Zealand have, have probably picked up a bit because their teams have been been playing so well of late that uh, they, get, they get good spectators. But the West Indies, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan, well, Pakistan really haven't had a chance to play in, in their home country. But uh, all the other countries have struggled spectator-wise. But I think if you speak to all, all the cricketers and, and the top administrators you know, that have, have played the game in administrating as well, um, that cricket is number one. There's no doubt about it. And you know, a, a drawn game in cricket can be very, very exciting. But uh, there is a lot of emphasis on, on one-day cricket. Uh, particularly T20, there's so many, 
you know, competitions going uh, around the world, and it can be very, very exciting. And I, I think it is a bit of a, a balancing act, and the balancing act, I think, must come from the administrators. I don't think they must allow too much t- uh, T20 cricket. Uh, they've got to c- cut it down a little bit and concentrate uh, on, on the test cricket and sort of really make uh, make that, that number one priority because the one-day one day cricket has taken care of itself. And as you rightly say, the, the, the World Cup in, in England, uh, the 50-over white ball game, was an unbelievable success, uh, and particularly, I suppose, because England, being the host nation, uh, playing at Lords in the final and winning that was was something uh, sensational. It really was, and such a great game um, that uh, you know the 50-over cricket, the World Cup, which is a World Cup, um, is is thriving. And I know there were a number of years back when people were actually talking about doing away with that. Um, so it's, it does go around uh, at circles a little bit. But I think cricket is actually in a healthy state at the moment. It's, it's good. There are a lot of good players around. We've seen some very exciting cricket in all formats. So cricket's healthy. No, that, that was a very insightful response and, you know, have me thinking a couple of uh, different angles. Uh, so one is uh, you, uh, you said test cricket is a priority, which I think most fans, I'm in my mid, mid-40s, uh, and I grew up watching a lot of Indian uh, red ball. Uh, you know, that, that's the time it was mostly even ODIs were red balls unless you go play in Australia. But uh, the counter-argument is uh, the T20 and the white ball cricket is uh, very important for the financial health of most cricket boards. So how is the South African board? Do you think there's a big big dependence on the white ball fortunes there uh, for the financial stability of uh, Cricket South Africa? Yeah, I think very much so. I think uh, the financial stability has depended uh, a lot on on white ball cricket because when you have test matches, uh, you know, you get India in a test series, it it's, has huge financial implications. Not implications, it's really positive. You make, you make, they make a lot of money. Uh, and it's one of the few countries where serious, serious money is, is made. Uh, the other countries, not so big. And I think the difference being test cricket, you know, over five days, um, obviously it's a lot longer. You know, five, five days of test cricket is five, five one-day games almost. Um, so it, it is important for the financial situation, test cricket. Uh, but you do need that uh, that base of, of a lot of, not a lot, but a number of uh, white ball cricket uh, to keep, almost to keep test cricket going at, at some stages. And in some countries it does. Hmm. All right, so let's do a couple more questions about South African cricket and then we'll start the Mike Proctor journey, which was supposed to be the start, but this is the way the conversation is going. So let's talk about A.B. de Villiers, I think one of the finest talents, one of the rarest talents the world has seen. I mean, what, a, what a player. Uh, so you think this kind of uh, lockdown, if this continues, uh, suppose uh, we, we don't know how the world's going to react and we can open and then shut down again because there's so many conversations going on. So if support, if uh, actual sport doesn't return, say, until next year, you think, uh, again, this is hypothetical, we don't know what he has said. You think this could maybe extend, uh, an, this could be an extension to his career, maybe, you know, this uh, thing, and this also applies to other players that maybe they come back and play and say, okay, they missed the game, or this could uh, this could be a swan song that some players we never hear back again from if this thing continues. Have you thought about those things? Um, yeah. Are you talking about A.D. Villiers? Yeah, well... In particular, yes. I, yeah. Um, you know, as, I say, as I said at the beginning, when we talked about uh, the, this, this virus and, and the, the lockdowns, um, I think everyone's going to be coming back really refreshed. And I think A.B. de Villiers... Uh, he was looking at playing in the World Cup T20. He hadn't made up his mind or uh, he hadn't sort of penned it in. He was uh, negotiating it 
whether to play or not. And I think that now that that's been extended, I think there's probably a better chance of him playing. And I think, uh, not that he owes it to the world, but um, the, the world would love to see him playing again because, as uh, as you say, he's a he's a very, very special player, probably the most talented all-round batsman I've ever seen. And I say that, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying for one second that he's better than Kohli. I'm just saying all-round talent, the way he manoeuvres the ball around. Virat Kohli doesn't need to do that. He just seems to play orthodox shots. Um, all the time, whether it be a T20 game or, or a test match. But AB applies his mind to, to the, the white ball cricket and, and some of the shots he plays, the reverse sweeps and flicks over the keeper's head and, and all those kind of shots are, are unbelievable. And he, he probably is the most exciting batsman in, in world cricket. I think anyone would, would love, would, would pay to go, and, to go and watch him play because he is extraordinary and you just do, know, do not know uh, what he's going to come up with. Uh, but I, I think... All the teams will will, will benefit from uh, from the from the layoff. So when you again, I'm sure you're a fan yourself. Even though you've you know donned many hats in cricket, and you know you've been cricket administration, you've been an um, ICC referee, and of course a, uh, a long stint with the uh, county cricket, and you know you played Curry Cup. But when you see someone like Amy De Villiers again, uh, uh, call time on his Test cricket fortunes, and MS Dhoni did a lot of players do that because Test cricket is very demanding. Uh, as, as a fan, do you wish the decision was different that they had paid test cricket and maybe call time on white ball cricket? Or you, or you totally understand when a player does that or there are more reasons that we fans don't see it why someone who's still looking good pulls the plug on the red ball and continues to play with the white ball? Obvious answer is it's less time-consuming and probably less strenuous, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I can totally understand why uh, players would give away five-day cricket and, and, and opt to, to concentrate more on one-day cricket. And I suppose it's because of my particular circumstances. I mean, I had a few injuries in my career, and particularly um, as an all-rounder or a bowler. And if you're a, a top bowler like a Dale Stane, for example, who can command a, a place in any T20 side in the world, um, you know, injury comes to play. And, and Dale Stane's another guy who had a lot of injuries. And going looking back at my career, for example, you know, you get to a stage where you say, you know, how, how long do you want to play? What are your chances of injury? And if you've got to bowl 25 overs in a day in test cricket, I mean, that's uh, that's what, four, that's five, six, six one-day uh, T20 games. You know, that that's the, the, the dif- difference is, is astronomical. So I think that a player's got to weigh it up in his own mind and, and work it out. And the, the, men- the mental side of it as well, in five-day test cricket, if it's a tough series, um, you've got to get mentally pre- prepared. And it, it does... Uh, does take its toll on, on, on batsmen as well. It doesn't just particularly be, be bowlers. Um, so I, I can totally understand why, why people opt to play uh, one-day cricket as opposed to test cricket. You're still playing uh, for your country in one-day cricket, not so much uh, T20 because you probably play fewer, fewer uh, one-day internationals as opposed to T20 tournaments around the world. Uh, but you're not giving away playing for your, your country, as it were. You're still representing your country. But... Uh, Representing your country, to me, uh, number one is, is playing uh, Red Bull cricket and, and a test match. No, that, that's fair enough. And, of course, you know, I'm no one to question that. But uh, back in the day when you were playing cricket, cricket wasn't player, uh, played all year long. Now, of course, cricket is played all year long. Uh, maybe that's why fast bowlers' careers are more challenging. Is that, uh, is that the notion? But then the counter-argument is there's better support staff, better medicine, better training and rehabbing facilities, recovery uh, exercises. Uh, and still, the careers are 
uh, our, our career is a little short compared to your days. Uh, I don't know if that's a factual statement. Uh, looking at you played 401 first-class matches. And, of course, uh, first-class matches are not as much in the order for like top players because they're always playing for the nation or like professional T20 leagues. So compare the two, compare the cross-generational life cycle of a fast bowler. And do you think uh, you, you're seeing bowlers getting extended uh, into their twilight years or uh, you think nothing has changed in terms of a longevity of a fast bowler? Yeah, I, I look at it uh, probably a little bit different. You know, they talk about fast bowlers burning out. Um, you know, when I played county cricket, uh, we played, and I'll never forget Vince van der Baal, uh, fast, fast medium bowler who would have played Crusader for many years, but he played a, a season for Middlesex. And I said to him, this was 1981, when Mike Brady was captain of Middlesex, and and I said to Vince, you know, when you're coming down our way, if you want to stay, if you're playing against against us, Gloucestershire or Somerset, which is just down the road, come and stay with us. And that never transpired. But he, he phoned me just before he was going to come down and said he'd, he'd try and pop in and say hello. But um, he was absolutely aghast. He, he couldn't believe it. He said, you know what? He said, we are scheduled to play cricket for the next 29 days in a row. And that was county cricket. You started a, a county game on a, on, a set, on, a, on a Saturday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And the Sunday was a John Players League game, which started, used to start at 2 o'clock, finish about 6.30 around there, uh, which was 40 overs. So you would play six days uh, normal cricket, two three-day games, uh, at John Players League game. And as in Vince van der Baal's case, that carried on for virtually a month. And so it, it was really tiring. And, and I, funnily enough, feel test cricket is probably easier than almost county cricket because, you know, if you've got a good batting side, you rest up for a day, day and a half at, at times. I know mentally it's tough because you, you're playing tough cricket, um, but you, you don't get the burnout scene that, that you do at county cricket. I, I played cricket for 13 years uh, in Natal, uh, in Rhodesia, as it was then, and, and Gloucestershire. And that's 12 months of the year. And you're not 12 months of the year like the players do now. I, I think that's probably almost easier because, you know, they're staying in smart hotels. Uh, they looked after tremendously well. Uh, the, the cricket is, is tough, but it's over a period of time. And, and you're not doing it every day. You know, when you're doing it every day, it, it does get you down. And, and uh, it, it is really tough. And the transport in those days, we used to travel by car wherever we went. So from a, from a mental point of view, that was tough as well. Um, so I, I haven't, I haven't got that much sympathy for fast bowlers these days in, in playing that much cricket, to be honest. Because you know, I, I know I had a tough playing county cricket. And have the county conditions changed uh, over the years in terms of well, not conditions, of course, but uh, the ball and how the pitches and surfaces are prepared? Uh, talk talk about that. Are you close to that uh, compared to you know your days with Gloucestershire? Yeah, I, I think. Um, well, pitches have varied, uh, particularly in my case, over the years, because we, we had a, a number of seasons with Gloucestershire where uh, we played on uncovered wickets, uh, and uh, that was tough. And I, I know, in, in, in particularly in, in hot, real hot countries where wickets are hard, uh, like West Indies, Australia, to a lesser extent New Zealand, but certainly South Africa, um, if you get a rain-affected wicket on a real hard pitch, it's, it's uh, almost unplayable. England, it was they weren't unplayable at times. Some of the pitches were. Some of the wickets that were very hard um, that got wet were, were pretty much unplayable. And I remember a game we played. Funnily enough, it was uh, – uh, I remember it because of David Shepard, the, the umpire, who was a great mate of mine at Gloucestershire. And 
we played against Kent, and it, I think it must have been Colin Cowdery's last year. So we're talking about probably 69, 70, 71, round about there. And Kent batted first on the Saturday. And it was a slowish wicket. They were about 300 and odd for about eight or nine on the, on the Saturday. Um, nice day. Sunday arrived. Sunday morning, it was good. We started the Sunday league game. And it looked very odd on the cricket field because uh, the, the covering the covering on the adjacent pitch uh, for the three-day game was the run-ups. It wasn't the actual pitch itself. Mm. And at about we had been, we'd, we'd faced about five overs and the heavens opened and we had torrential rain. And obviously Kent uh, declared overnight. And the game was over over Monday tea time. Underwood got uh, a seven-wicket haul and an eight-wicket haul. He got 15 wickets in the match, uh, 15 for about 40-odd. We were bowled out in no time. And he was literally unplayable. And that's where I said, I remember oh, poor old Dave Shepard, because he got a, a king pair or a royal pair, whatever <laughs> it is. But two, two, two first ballers from Derek Underwood. One was caught by Alan Knott way above his head, almost in front of Slip. And the other, you know, he was caught at points of, of a similar delivery. But those are the type of pitches you... You had to you play on at times, but overall, I think the pitches maybe they they have helped the bowlers a little bit more because in the older days, I recall in the sort of 60s, 70s, uh, you look at the England sides, Australian sides, they were scoring 400s and 500s, and there were a lot of drawn games. Uh, but in this day and age, you know, this is where Test cricket is is almost hurried up. You get a lot more results than you did in the older days, so it is a lot more attractive. Is it? And is I think the reason. Sorry? No, I was going to say, is it a function of uh, uh, teams have just, teams don't have the time to invest. Teams are not as good travelers, with the exception of Smith, Kohli, maybe Williamson. There are not many players today, and of course, uh, Amla and uh, De Villiers a few years ago, who can bat in all conditions. So that's why you think uh, Test cricket is more like home side bowling advantage. Toss is such a crucial factor uh, because results are good, but uh, some, some, some things. Uh, do stand out in today's game compared to like game even a decade ago. Yeah, I, I, that that is a, a bit of a problem, and it, it's a, a bit of worry. You know what happens in India? The wickets there turn uh, almost from from day one. South Africa had some bad experiences of that, um, and and really, you should you should try and get a pitch that that lasts five days. Uh, and I know some of the wickets in India they they have been very flat. And you do what you do want a result wicket. You know, ideally, you want a result on the the fifth afternoon, where you first day of the test match, it might do a little bit, ease out second and third day, and then from the fourth day, might take turn, get a bit uneven, and uh, carry on into the fifth day, where you, you've got a chance of a result. But, you know, pitches, you know, no one can control them. You know, who knows how they're going to play. Uh, the only way you do know it's going to play, I mean, if you if you do what has happened at times um, in the subcontinent, is you make it very, very bare and very dry. And from there, you know it's going to, it's going to turn a great deal. But it's a little bit unfortunate that it's um, the, the sides prepare for their own conditions. But I, I've got no real gripes with that. I've always said it take, it's 11 against 11, and that, that's the way the way cricket is. You just want to try and entertain the crowd and, and have a good game. And a good game means longevity as well. You don't want a, a five-day test match over in two and a half days. True. I mean, it was Ricky Ponting, I think, a few years ago when he was uh, turning into broadcaster, you know, a camera behind the, you know, uh, with, with a microphone in his hand, I think he said something that uh, it, it'll 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 be in a lost art pretty soon that you expect someone to bat through final two sessions of a test match to save to save the test. 
and that something is uh, you know gonna ex- uh, you know uh, disappear fast so you think we are there yet that you know if uh, on a testing track if uh, how many players can today bat and save the test match i mean that's something saving for a draw used to be like a very honorable cause and fans sometimes enjoyed that now that's a total lost art in my opinion yeah i i think as well one of the reasons for that um is because of one day cricket because there's so much one day uh, cricket is played that uh, you know batsmen play play more shots in test cricket now than they used to because they're getting used to it playing one day cricket they they have to play a lot of shots uh, so that's that there in itself lies a problem uh, and again in the the wickets but uh, you know as you, as you say the a, a drawn game when a batsman's got a bat for for a long period uh, can be very exciting and i recall while you mentioned that was it was was faf duplessis who who batted for wow was it like Eight hours for a hundred not out. We're not in South Africa. We're really battling against Australia. I think it was in Adelaide, and South Africa were, were they were definitely going to lose that Test match until Faf uh, made made a, I think it was a hundred and one not out. But he literally batted for a, a, a day and a quarter, and then South Africa went on to win the next two Test matches. And you know that innings uh, saving South Africa from losing uh, won them the series and, and set them on a road to to uh, a, a very bright future. Hmm. This is, a, this is a personal question. I'm a big fan of Chiteshwar Pujara and sometimes a biased fan because you know, all fans are biased. And a lot of times I counter my friends and, uh, with different arguments and they say, oh, his strike rate and, you know, even the test match is not about strike rate. He uh, holds up one end and it creates pressure on the other guy. And I said, look, look at all the matches. Sometimes even India's recent match in New Zealand, we didn't reach even day five. So I'm totally okay with Pujara eating 100 more balls because if you look at the history of great batsmen in cricket, they have to score runs, uh, no matter how many balls they take. So Pujara is guilty a lot of times, like others, when he doesn't score runs. But consumption of balls, I don't think... Uh, again, I grew up in a different era. I just don't think it's fair that someone's consuming one end of the crease. was seen in art. Now they say, oh, he bogs it down. So your thoughts on how the game has changed? Because a lot of new generation fans, you know, they know the importance of test cricket, but they don't want someone who's just taking, say, 120 balls to score 30 runs. Yeah, well, I, I, obviously in, in, in test cricket, um, you've got to get the runs on the board. How you do that uh, depends on the wicket and the opposition. But if it's a wicket that you know you're going to get a result, then as a batsman's point of view, it, it doesn't doesn't matter how how long it does take to get to get the runs on the board. If, for example, if you're taking India and, and they know um, the wicket's going to turn big time and Panjara bats, and he bats and he bats and he takes his time and, and, and gets big runs, but it's consumed a lot of time, uh, that's fine because you're going to win the test match because you've got the runs on the board. But if you get a good a good pitch where you know you've got to, your run rate's got to be upped because you need time from the bowling side to bowl the opposition out, well, then then, it's not, then he's not in a good space. But apart from that, uh, you know, he is. He's a very, very fine player. But at times, he just he looks as though he does get bogged down. But... Uh, he does a great job for his side, and especially in trying circumstances. Again, you know, I might get in trouble with some of my other friends and fans who listen to this, but Pujara's, I think, career uh, strike rate and test cricket, there's such a thing, is still, I think, slightly higher than Dravid's uh, the last time I checked. And Dravid, I don't remember ever getting accused. I think some some of it is also Pujara's dismissal and the way Pujara has limited strokes compared to Dravid because Dravid was very, you know, uh, he had a complete game. He could attack, he could play better offside drives. Uh, so some of some of it, I think, is a function of uh, 
the times we live in. Uh, even the very well-known voices sometimes bring about the strike rate. But again, that was my two cents on Pujara. So in your couple of previous responses, you mentioned Mike Brearley. And there's a big discussion in cricket Twitter the other day that uh, Brearley, as much of a great tactician and a great captain he was, in today's cricket, he would not find a place because his batting was, with all due respect, he, his numbers weren't you know all-time great numbers or even good numbers. His average was, I think, in the 30s. So talk about that. You know the man and how the game was played, how the game has shifted. Would a Mike Brearley ever fit into a test-playing 11 for any nation, even though he was such an astute general on the field? Mike Brearley was uh, a different type of uh, cricketer. Uh, as you rightly say, he was, he was very, very astute, a uh, brilliant captain, a good motivator, a good psychologist. And I think there'd always be a, a place in a team for, for a Mike Brearley. As, as has been said, he wasn't uh, the greatest player in the world, but he actually did a job up front. You know, he saw the new ball off when it had to be seen off. He didn't uh, accelerate and score runs at a great rate. But what he did do, if he, his job was to open the batting and, and uh, see the new ball off. He did that very, very well. But his captaincy was, uh, was his, his mark. And I'll never forget that test match, um, at the famous test match, at Leeds, when uh, Ian Botham scored 140 and Graham Dilley scored runs. And uh, I think it was Australia needed, uh, well, was it about 140 to win? After they must have been 180 behind when Graham Dilley joined Ian Botham. So they were six wickets down. And Mike Bailey was captain then. And at Leeds, as we all know, it's a little bit downhill. Um, it's a new stadium now, but it, it, the surface is still the same. And Bob Willis was the, the fastest bowler in the world at that stage. Uh, Chris Old was the other opening bowler for England. And Mike Brearley gave the, the new ball to Chris Old. And Chris Old was a fast medium bowler at fastest. And Bob Willis was renowned as a, you know, the best fast bowler in world cricket. Mike Brearley threw the new ball to Chris Old, uh, who was fast medium, to bowl uh, downhill and downwind. Now, that will G up any fast bowler. I know in my mind, if I was the number one fast bowler and there's a medium fast bowler bowling in my place and we, we, we're trying like hell to, to win a test match, I'd be, I'd be absolutely furious. But it worked because Mike Brelin often over to uh, swap Willis around to bowl downhill and, and downwind. And as they say, the rest is definitely history. You know, he was just unbelievable. He was so motivated and bowled so quick. And, you know, you see him running off the field at the end. I mean, he just bowled, I don't know how many overs. And then he was in a, almost in another world. It was just a magnificent display of bowling. Uh, but people forget it was uh, the astute captaincy of Mike Brearley that actually probably won that test match. Was he a defensive captain? Was he an aggressive captain? What was his style of captaincy? I mean, what, uh, of course, all of us have read a lot about him and he's been discussed at length. So how does he stand out compared to like today's captains? I mean, how was he seeing the game differently? I don't know whether he saw the game differently. Maybe um, he saw it differently because he he can perceive what is going to happen rather than, than other people who couldn't. Uh, but he was just, just very, very astute. An attacking captain, when he wanted to attack, he attacked big time. And if he had to defend, he would defend. Um, you know, there's always two ways of, of getting wickets. You can attack and then you can defend. And sometimes you dry up the runs to get the wickets, as we know. And Mike really seemed to have that art of, of getting getting it always right, attacking at the right time, getting the fielders in the right positions, getting the right bowlers on, um, and also defending defending when he had to. And, uh, you know, to me, he's just a 100% all-round brilliant captain. Okay, so finally, uh, let's talk about, you know, the debut uh, with you as international cricketer against Bob Simpson's Australians. 
Uh, I know it's a long time ago, and I'm sure you've asked a million times, so I don't want to, you to go through uh, the full exercise here. But uh, I'm sure still, uh, do thoughts come back and what could have been? Of course, you accepted the isolation period like many other cricketers. Uh, but, you know, you, your team was a pretty solid team back then. How, how do you see it individually and collectively as a group you could have done in, in those isolation uh, periods of, from test cricket? Yeah, it, uh, obviously, uh, it was it was tough for, for the cricketers, um, and people say they they sort of uh, feel for me not having had a having had a test career. But I certainly look at it another way, and, and if it, one small test career can help um, help the lives and better the lives of 45 million South Africans, then that's a, that's a that's a huge plus for me. And I feel sorry for the for the guys that never had a chance to play to play test cricket, the, the likes of Clive Rice. Uh, Vince van der Baal, a guy called or Garth Roo, as we know, he was um, man of the series in Australia as a fast bowler. He, he bowled as quick as anyone in the world for about three or four years. A uh, brilliant bowler. Uh, Dennis Hobson, which you would a name you wouldn't know, but a brilliant leg spinner. And I, funnily enough, think if we had gone through into the into the seventies, uh, you know, I, I, I reckon and dare I say it, we probably could have had a better side because coming to the fold then was Clive Rice, uh, Vince van der Baal. Uh, those those two names stick out. Dennis Thompson, Garth Leroux was around, um, so um, we would have had a power power pack side in the 70s. But the reason we didn't play was because of apartheid. So that 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 was that was that was right. I mean, we had to be we had to have the isolation, and if it helped bring down apartheid, you know, that's that's so be it. And if we played any small part in that, uh, that's great. Um, so we deserve. It's, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Garth Leroux. When I was prepping for this show with one of my friends, who's a big cricket historian, and he told me that Imran Khan once said that Garth Leroux was the quickest fast bowler in the world. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, very much so. He was, you know, and Emmy um, was uh, opened the bowling with Garth at Sussex, and they were a formidable opening, opening, opening pair. They were, and Garth was. There's no doubt. Uh, we played in the, in the rest of the world. Uh, in the Packers series, 1978-79, in the last series there, and we we won. We beat we we won all our games. We we beat the West Indies comfortably. Uh, we beat Australia uh, comfortably, and Garth was the man of the series. He he was he bowled bowled fantastically well and, and very very quick, and he was. I think he's right. He was at that stage the fastest bowler in the world, no doubt. Uh, you and you know your fellow players from South Africa made the best of you know those times because you were not playing Test cricket. You were, some of you were picked by county teams and the curry cup i read you know was even more intense because that's one of the limited cricket you guys were playing so when you look back uh, at your isolation phase which cricket brought the best out of you was it county was it the rebel tours or was it the curry cup um difficult to say it was it was probably it was probably the the curry cup if i say that um because we were isolated because we only played uh, at, at lot fewer games, it was six or eight games, it was about the, the total number of first-class games, I think it was eight, we weren't playing test cricket. So the highest level we could get to uh, was Curry Cup cricket, which was, you know, the first-class game in South Africa. So it was it was really tough cricket. It was the ultimate. And, um, you know, it was really tough going for younger players coming through that system. So I, I think that probably was the toughest. The county cricket was very, very hard as far as longevity is concerned. You know, you're doing it all the time, every single day, a lot of traveling. And uh, I think World World Series cricket, uh, Kerry Packer, 
also was great. Um, you know, for the for the first time in a long time, South Africans could show their faces in international cricket, albeit wasn't recognised by the ICC for obvious reasons. Uh, but that was that was probably the toughest cricket. That was tougher than the Curry Cup, uh, in so much as there were uh, more quality players around. And the reason I think it was so tough was, uh, you know, we were ostracised from from world cricket. It was just the 55 players taking on the, the rest of the world in cricket, and um, we had to make it work. And the only way we could make it work was to play the, to the best of our ability. And um, that was that was the way it had to be. And all the players recognised that. So. Uh, the, the play, the play, and the quality of, of play on the field was exceptionally high. But having said all that, although it was so tough on the field, uh, no quarter given or asked for, uh, the camaraderie and, and the friendship uh, off the field was was brilliant. Okay. And it was just a, a very great, a wonderful experience for for all those players to have have participated in it. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it was like a quarantine from international cricket. So you guys, like today, made the best of what you can with you know the limited competition you had. Looks like you play a lot of cricket, but you weren't playing at the international Absolutely. level. But you made the best experience out of what was out there. So again, the next question Absolutely. is a total fan question. My friend asked me that if I can ask you, uh, talent-wise, uh, if you know South Africa was was would have played the Test cricket, who, who would have been a bigger impact, Pollock or Richards? That's Barry Richards or Graham Pollock. Difficult, difficult. To me, they were both great players. Um, they really were. I've seen Graham play some unbelievable innings. Barry Richards is probably uh, the best all-round player I've I've seen. And when I say all-round player, uh, if it was short, he went back. If it was full, he went up. He got across. Um, he went. You know, everything was totally orthodox. He, he didn't play unorthodox shots really. Uh, he was an all-round player of note, and he, he seemed to pick up the ball so well. Graham was uh, not as all-round as, as Barry, didn't have the shots all around the wicket that Barry did. But when he hit the ball, you know, it stayed hit. He was fantastic. Um, so I wouldn't like to say who would, who would have played better. Um, they both were, were the great players. Who would travel better? I mean, hypothetical, suppose come to subcontinent, play the spin attack of India and those uh, slow pitches. Who would adapt better? Because, again... Uh, cricket was always international and I think Indian fans missed out like most of the world on seeing some of you guys in action back in the day. I think because of his all-round play, if I had to pick someone who would adapt better, if you sort of took the, the just turning wickets that uh, I think uh, we've seen in India for the past you know, past couple of, couple of years, it really does bring the best out in investmentship. And I think Barry probably would have handled it better than most because he was such a good all-round player. But, uh, you know, guys like Graham, uh, they would have found a way. Uh, mm. But I, I recall about Barry, County Cricket, there was a – he, he wanted to make 2,000 runs in his first Curry Cup season – in his first English County season. And the Yorkshire players got to hear of this and uh, they, they wanted to know who this, who this guy was. He thinks he's such a good player. And they played against – Hampshire played Yorkshire. Um, again, I'm not sure where it was. And the story may have been exaggerated down the years, but – uh, it, was a, it was a wicket that really turned a great deal. And I think Hampshire, in the, in, it was in the first or second innings, were bowled out for 180, uh, of which Barry got 142 not out. And that was on a on a really, really turning wicket against Yorkshire. So, you know, he, he would adapt and uh, he would have, he'd have, uh, he'd have made it work. But as I said, a guy like Graham Pollock as well. There was talk about him being dropped in the early 1960s against Titmus, um and Titmus and someone else, I forget who the other bowler was. 
and because he was bowled out in the first test or the second test by the by the all spinners, and people say he can't play spinners, you know, he must be dropped. But that didn't last long. I think he got a big hundred in the next test and and took off again. Okay, so now back to you. Were you a bowling all rounder? I know your numbers are pretty impressive in the four hundred one first class games. Uh, wh- what category would you would you have been? Would you would you be like a Jacques Callis or would you have been more like a uh, Imran Khan or Ian Botham? You know, who could bat a, a lot, but you know, predominantly was a, a bowler at heart. How would you look back at uh, your your cr- cricket journey? Yeah, I think by by, by records, obviously a, a bowling all rounder. Uh, my batting, unfortunately, I, I always I, I didn't value my wicket as as highly as I should have. I, I was always a guy that um, I suppose personal records weren't uh, number one priority for me. The number one priority was was winning for the team. So my wicket wasn't that important, um, and, and that's a little bit. And I know my my batting in Test cricket is not good, but in in, in the series in in 1970, um, I just recall having gone and we we got so many runs on the board. I kept holding out at, at long off and long on and uh, never really had a chance to, to make big runs because I was batting down at about seven or eight down the order. And the Pollocks and Riches and Irvins and Barlows had stolen all the runs up front, so they didn't leave any for me. But um, no, you, you, I, I enjoyed batting a great deal. I mean, you, you're part of a very, uh, I think, rare stat along with Don Bradman, uh, one of the, I think, three batsmen to score six centuries in a row for when you're playing for Rodisha. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, that those... Those numbers cannot cannot be by chance. That that shows some batting, you know, batting talent right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was very interesting. I, I didn't realize the sort of the record. I, I never really played for it, but um, I had a I had a, bit, a little bit of luck in it, during those innings. That's for sure. And and I'll never forget the, the last game, um, the sixth innings, was against Western Province, and they had a, a pretty pretty good attack. Two good fast bowlers and Graham Chevalier spinner. Uh, who played for South Africa. And we were actually, uh, I batted five. We were five runs on the board for three wickets. And I got I was dropped that second or third slip of Johnny Kaywood, who was a fast bowler. Um, and from there, I ended up making 254, and we were bowled out for about 380. And it's sort of, uh, people were talking about it. It was written up in the press in Rhodesia about 600. And it didn't really bother me at the time because my main objective at that stage was we because we had such big trouble was to get runs for the team and you know I got runs and got bigger runs and bigger runs and it sort of really only hit home um, you know after I'd sort of almost got out so you know, I'd, I'd equal the record but it was never my intention to, to to try for that record it was it just happened with a lot with a little bit of luck yeah I'm sure there was not much luck there but anyway <laughs> uh, so you were also part of this world's fast bowler competition. This was close to twilight of your career. Uh, you know, there were some younger ones there. Uh, I think Imran was there, Andy Robert was there, Richard Hadley was there. What do you remember of that competition and how fast were these guys bowling? Uh, that was um, World Series cricket. I think Kerry Packer, that organization, um, we had it. Jeff Thompson was, I think Jeff, Jeff Thompson won it. There were about 10 of us, I think, participating, but um, it, it wasn't that serious. It wasn't that big a competition like if you did it today. Uh, you know, television and everyone would sponsors and everyone would take off. Where in those days it, it didn't really, because it was World Series cricket as well, which was um, not not number one priority in cricket because we were, we were isolated. But I, I think Jeff Thompson won it. But the guys were fast. I, I, I was. It's been quoted. I've never seen it before. But um, 
someone said that I, I was, my speed was 149. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I know I, I wasn't at my fastest in 1978. That's for sure. I'd, I'd lost a half a yard or a yard, and whether the whether the whether the instruments were right in, in clocking the speed, you know, one wonders. But um, the guys were fast, um, and that that's been lacking a little bit, I think, of late. You know, you had the Brett Lees and Sharp Actor. Um, but uh, it, those sort of years uh, from between 1990s to sort of the next 10 or 20 years, there weren't that many fast bowlers around. How, how fast but, was um, Jeff Thompson? I mean, is there a myth around the speed gun? Because all, all the legends of the sport talk about he was the fastest thing ever uh, and some of his best bowling was not captured. What do you recall of his bowling and had you seen up close in a game? Yeah, no, he was, he was frightening. I think one of the reasons was... Um, he had a, a very awkward action, so you never actually saw the ball um, until it, because he, he came with it. He got very side on. The ball went, his right arm went behind his back, and then he sort of catapulted down the pitch. And I think that, that was why Batsman struggled against him more than another guy, Michael Holding, for example, who was as quick as Tomer. I, I, I couldn't sort of different, differentiate the two. But Mikey had such a beautiful, smooth run up, and you could always see the ball. And, and he was always probably. I would rather face Michael Holding than, than Jeff Thompson because of the fact that, you know, Tomo, the ball came on you before you almost expected it. Although you knew what his action was, it was still just a bit deserting. Um, but those fast bowlers, I mean, the West Indies, you know, uh, they were just fantastic. I mean, when you've got four fast bowlers like, like they had, it was, you know, unheard of really. And then particularly in those days, no no helmets. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, you know, anyone who plays test cricket with red ball, no matter what country, is, is a very courageous man, and you know, and, and of course, full of talent because you're looking at a ball that's coming at a certain speed. But how, how did helmets change the game? Um, they, they, they definitely did change the game. I think um, you know people would probably hook when they wouldn't have hooked before. And the one thing I think you did do when you didn't have a didn't have a helmet was you you, had, you made sure you watched the ball. And I think a lot of people get hit when they turn their head away from the ball. Uh, but if you actually watch the ball, you're less likely to get hit. And uh, I think the helmets obviously have, have made a difference. It's, and it's, it's amazing that they came into, into play uh, so late. And it was, it was Kerry Packer was, was the guy who insisted on, on, on Dennis Lilly wearing a, a helmet, you know. And, and, and Fott, uh, Dennis Lilly didn't, wasn't too keen on it. You know, he was, he was a fast bowler and a, a man guy and he didn't want a, a helmet on his head. But Kerry Packer made him put one on and, uh, from there, it, it took off, and it's been a vital part of, of cricket. There's no doubt about that. And that's why us Indians, especially the nostalgia fans, as, as we are called, we rate Sunny Gavaskar very high in our books for Test cricket. Sunny Gavaskar, yeah, never Fantastic wore a helmet, player. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic player. I mean, uh, he had that floppy white hat, didn't he? That was his. Almost his warm-up, I think, if I recall. Uh, but a fantastic all-round player. He, he really was. And I remember he played for Somerset. I, when I was playing for Gloucestershire, and I, I bowled to him. And it was he, – he probably had one of the straightest bats I've ever seen. I mean, you almost at times thinking you were bowling against a, a brick wall. His defense was absolutely perfect. And shots all around the wicket. Um, quick on his feet. A phenomenal player. Yeah, so I know we are coming up uh, with requested time, but there's still a few questions, so I'll try to make this fast. So when you guys got readmitted uh, and you, you were the coach of the team and then there's a World Cup that came very quickly, let's talk about that phase. 
and and the omission of uh, the three key players uh, from from that. Uh, and what, what do you recall of that? And were you surprised? What was the resistance uh, from from your end for those selections that the South African board had made? Yeah, um, the the uh, the three players in, in South African cricket uh, at that stage, the top players. I think three of them were, were Kirsten, uh, Jimmy Cook, and, and Clive Ross, uh, along with the Kepler Vessels. And when when the We'd, we'd gone to India to play three one-match uh, series when we first got back in, in 91-92, in when we got back into the international fold. And Ricey was captain of that side. We won one of the three games, um, which was uh, – we put a, we put up a very good performance scene. We'd been out for so long and playing in India. And then we were invited to the World Cup. And uh, in the World Cup, and I think it still applies today, about three months before the tournament starts, you've got to nominate – 20 players, and of that 20, the 15 will come out. That's for programs and everything else. And um, South Africa dominated their, their 20, and neither Kirsten, Cook, or Rice was in that, in that squad. And I'd been appointed a coach, and, and I couldn't believe it. And I, as, as a coach in those days, had very little or no say in, in, in selection. Uh, very, I, I gave my opinion, uh, and that was about it. But it, it was amazing that the selectors had, had left those guys out. And it was pretty much dominated to a certain extent by Port Elizabeth, Eastern Province, where Kepler uh, lived and was captain of Eastern Province. And uh, whether it was coincidence or not, but the president of uh, South African Cricket was uh, from Eastern Province. And the convener of selection uh, was, was from West, Eastern Province. Um, and and uh, I pushed speaking to everybody. Uh, that those three guys must be included. And eventually, Ali Bacher said to the selectors that I must have some sort of say. And I went to one of the, the final selections, which was invited in just to have a five-minute talk. And they asked me my opinion. And I just said, uh, you know, I think those three players. And I went to Clive, Clive Rice. Um, and they said, no, no, we can't pick him. Gave reasons. Kepler uh, Vest has spoken to us. And we've told him. And uh, Jimmy Cook, no, we, he can't go. And I said, Peter Kirsten, and they just said, yeah, he's going. And it was sort of almost made up pretty early that Peter Kirsten would go out of the three as opposed to, to Cook or Rice. And um, as we all know, Peter Kirsten did fantastically well. And as it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a good side that, that uh, was picked and we did exceptionally well. But I, I don't know, and I wonder if we'd had the other two guys, we would have done better. Hmm. Uh, another name that comes to mind a few years down the road was Brett Schultz, and uh, he seemed, uh, and I think, did you say or someone say he was as fast as Donald, but he had a very short career. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, his uh, short stint with South Africa and how quick he was. Yeah, well, I think it, it would have, could have, it was, if Schultz hadn't got injured, it could have ended up, the, one of the great combinations of test cricket was Donald and Schultz, because uh, Schultz was uh, left on fast, very, very fiery. A very, very aggressive. Big guy. Um, and a big guy. You know, he had an awkward action. And we, we beat Sri Lanka in Colombo on, a, on a, a, a slow, low wicket. And Schultze bowled, bowled him out. And we won us a test match quite comfortably on, on a slow, low wicket when they had some good players, uh, top players around. And we were a formidable test side then. So, And then, then he got injured and, and he never really came back after that. But mm -hmm. when he did play, the, the few... Um, Tessie did play. Him and Donald were a perfect combination. Brilliant. Okay. 
Uh, another question, you know, I know trying to wrap this up was uh, during your watch, South Africa had celebrations ready uh, on the fourth day of a test against West Indies, uh, and the result did not go as planned. Do you recall that one? Uh, is it the test, test against West Indies when we lost it on the last, yeah, on the fourth day? Yeah, the stories came out. I mean, I don't know how much of it's true, but yeah, they say you guys were in, I mean, not you, but I think the players were already in celebration mode. They think they had the game. Well, I remember that game. We 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 were we were in a very good position overnight, um, but there was always there was always going to be a problem in Barbados on that pitch at Kennington Oval uh, because the wicket did get more and more uneven, uh, particularly day four and day five. But uh, they had some real good fast bowlers, and we we got bowled out by by Ambrose and Walsh who, who bowled. They, they they didn't bowl a bad ball. I can't I can't almost recall them bowling a bad ball. And at, at one stage we we were we were miles away. I think we only needed about I don't know how many it was seventy or eighty runs uh, with eight wickets in hand, and we lost comfortably by two very very fine fast bowlers. And it was a great exhibition of fast bowling. Hmm. And let's talk about a plug-in for your book that came out a few years ago. And uh, you 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 have been at the forefront of some of you know. Uh, some of the rich experiences, and then missing out on cricket, then in the commentary box. Sorry, what, you, what are you talking about now? Uh, your Sorry, book. Just, can you repeat the question? I'm saying, yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Let's, do, let's do a plug-in about your book that came out, and you know, anybody who listens to this podcast can go read that book because that book's available, and you open up about a lot of uh, a lot of tough decisions and a lot of tough experiences, and one of them is the 2006 Oval Test match, England and Pakistan. Uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a nutshell, how do you recall? being part of that experience uh, as a match referee? Very sad, really, because, um, you know, there's no, no way a test match should, should finish the way, the way it was. And um, uh, it was, it was Daryl Hare who was what the instigator behind all that. And I was called in for the, the last test match of that series. For whatever reason, I, I don't know. Because uh, Ranjan Modigali had done the first three test matches and I was called in to do the fourth. And there was a lot of talk in those days about Pakistan tampering with the ball, and for no for no rhyme or reason that why it had to be Pakistan, but there was talk about a lot of ball tampering, <coughs> changing condition of the ball during that period. And um, I recall the the fourth morning when it happened, and I had been out to talk to the, the coaches and captains. I, I always felt one of the, the unwritten laws. Rules for a match referee must be to try and get the two teams to gel together. <clears throat> so I would I'd go to speak to Bob Wilmer as it was then. He was the, the Pakistan coach, and I was, you know go to Bob and how are you doing? Anything all right? Any problems? Same as I did to Duncan Fletcher because I played with with those guys, so it was pretty easy. And then we were walking to the umpire's room, and I, I sort of crossed swords with with Daryl Hare. And Daryl Hare in the first innings after England had bowled. Uh, after Pakistan had bowled and England had batted, uh, he looked at he, he showed me the ball and said, uh, "What do you think of the ball?" Um, so I said, "It looks fine." So he put the ball back in the the kookaburra box, and then the fourth day arrived when I, I crossed swords with him and I said, "Oh, Daryl, how's it going? No, fine." And I said, "I had a, a gut feel about it." I said, "Daryl, by the way, you asked me about the the ball after Pakistan had bowled in the first innings. Is anything going to come of that, or was there a reason for it?" And verbatim, he said, the match will take its course, which, you know, was a 
well, it was pretty much a profound statement. And and as we know, the rest is, is pretty much history. You know, he, he accused the Pakistanis of, of temp- tampering of the ball and changed the ball, gave the batting side five runs. And, um, you know, the, the rest, as they say, is history because Daryl Hare went out uh, after tea with the other umpire, uh, Billy Doctorov, and the Pakistan didn't go out. But at this stage, I was sort of trying to get the Pakistan players on the side. I wanted to speak to um, Zahir Abbas, who was the manager, and to Bob. And eventually, when I went down, Daryl Hare was in the in the umpire's room. And I was a bit astounded because I thought they'd actually gone out. Because I was going to say to them that Pakistan, are they going, they're keen to play. And Daryl Hare said, well, you know, the game's off. He's called the game off because they refused to play. So to me, very, very sad. You know, your test match should, should never end like that. And, uh, yeah. And of course, it's in hindsight, but would, if something hypothetical was were to happen today, would you handle this differently? Or do you think uh, everyone involved, you know, it was a unique situation back then and uh, it's easy to say different things now, but has a thought occurred? Uh, could could th- some things would have been altered if this were to happen now with the knowledge you have now? With the knowledge I have now, I, I don't think it would change things because uh, I just think other umpires on the day would have handled it different. Uh, I'm sure they would have handled it different. But to this stage, um, it wasn't handled in the way that I would have liked it to be handled. Uh, and I would have. But the, but the laws have changed. From that day, the RCC changed regulations. And now the match referee has to agree with the umpires that play can be called off. So in that situation, Daryl here, if he wanted to call play off, would have had to come to the match referee um, to ask permission. Uh, and give the reasons why uh, the game's been called off. And obviously, in my situation, that, that wouldn't have applied. We would have found a, a way to to minimize that and, and get on with the game. Yeah. Anyway, so the book is called Caught in the Middle. Anybody who listens to this uh, podcast and is interested uh, about uh, Mike and his career and his opinions and you know more things that happen as, as part of cricket administration and commentary, you can check that book out. It's on, available on Amazon. So let's wrap this conversation uh, with a sensitive topic, and Mike has been pretty vocal about that too. So the Justin Ontalk and Jacques Rudolph uh, 22, what is it, 2002 test match case which you know got a lot of news so how do you look back at that phase and I know you've spoken publicly about it a few times too uh, everyone was shocked at that uh, you know what transpired there and uh, as a this loaded question uh, take it which way you want to take and then uh, would this kind of thing happen today I don't think so no um, it, it, the, for what happened then it was the, the, the president of cricket who overruled the selectors um, and what happens when its team is selected? It goes to the president of the of the country, and they agree agree with the team. That's like pretty much automatic. Uh, in this case, the president in the morning of the game overruled it. Um, how that came about? It only happened in the morning. I, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs about it because it's a very very touchy touchy subject, as you can imagine. But in this day and age, um, I, I would say no, that wouldn't happen. Anyway, so we covered quite a lot. Thanks for generosity of your time. I know we are all still uh, in self-quarantine, but, you know, things you, you could be doing different things than talking to me. So I really enjoyed it, uh, Mike, and hopefully anyone who tunes into this podcast will also enjoy it. Thank you very much. No, thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate uh, your time as well. And <clears throat> let's just all hang in there and 
and look forward to some uh, good cricket, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later.